The internet's full of true crime podcasts. More and more are added to the list every day. Figuring out where to start or where to go next can be overwhelming. But have no fear, I'm here to help. I'm Bob Ruff, and this is the place to find your next true crime binge. Righty, I am joined today by Robin Warder, uh, who hosts the podcast called "The Trail Went Cold." Uh, Robin, you've been you've been around for a long time. You've been around since 2016. Of over 300 episodes, uh, and uh, you're still recording in what appears to be your bedroom. Yes, that's true. Uh, <laughs> I, 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 yeah, you're looking at me right now. I I have a new office. I just moved into this condo a couple months ago, but there's just so much open space that you will hear the echo. So I just got my bedroom uh, in the back here. But one of these days, I will install a professional studio. <laughs> you know, it's your 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 work sounds great. I've I've seen closets, basements. Um, this are you are you sitting on the floor? I am. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Is that is that how you like? How are we, are we talking crisscross applesauce? How are you arranged there? I can only see you from the chest up. I'm sitting cross legged uh, with the bed behind me on my floor mat. I've had a lot of practice doing Zoom recordings uh, since I moved into this place, and I figured out this is the best place to get good quality sound and not lose internet connection. So it's become my permanent recording space. <laughs> nice, and that is the uh, the the trials and tribulations of a podcasters constantly trying to find some place in our homes where. <laughs> I've recorded for years in a garden shed because it was the only place where I could get quiet. Yeah, I've heard that from many fellow podcasters uh, that they record in their closets or their basements, just very unglamorous places. Right. Now, the bed is made pretty nicely. Is this is this typical or did you do that just for me? Oh, no, it is. I, I keep a very neat condo, but uh, I want it's true. I wanted to keep it clean to make a good impression just in case you were going to see my bedroom. <laughs> right. If, if I was doing it in my bedroom, it'd be an absolute disaster. The only time I ever make my bed is when people are coming over. Okay. Why can I just get up and leave it a disaster? There's dogs sleeping on it, so uh, I, I'm impressed with with your cleanliness. Oh, thank you. Well, I've only been here a few months, so I haven't had enough time to mess everything up. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, and where are you located? Are you in Canada? Yes, I work in uh, Ottawa, Ontario, which is the capital of our country. Okay. Um, and have you born and raised there, or have you moved around? Uh, I, wor- I was born in a town called Orangeville, which is located about an hour outside of Toronto, uh, about, I think it was 18 years ago, I made the move to Ottawa because uh, there was a course I wanted to take at Algonquin College for script writing, which would be a skill that would eventually serve me well in podcasting, even though there was no podcast back then. And I wound up getting a job eventually with Global Affairs Canada as a records management officer. So now that I have this permanent government job here in Ottawa, I've decided to stay here. Uh, so you say you're a records recorder? Is that what you is that what you just said? A uh, records management officer. I pretty much work for a, a a branch of the government that works on stuff like free trade agreements and WTO litigation cases, and I'm pretty much responsible for managing their records and keeping them uh, safe. Um, when I started there, we had a lot of old digital paper records, but in the past uh, decade, they've gone more electronic. So I've spent years uh, scanning documents, saving them electronically and shredding lots and lots of paper. And one of my duties okay. now is that if any lawyers are working on a case and they need to find an old legal opinion written 20, 30 years ago, I'm the guy who can find it. 
Oh, nice. Sounds like a pretty exciting job. It is. Uh, yeah, I wish it was criminal law so I could uh, look, go get the old <laughs> crime cases, but it's just trade law. But it's a good way, good job to have to balance my podcasting. Nice. And so in, it's, you said you took that screenwriting class. Uh, Erica tells me you're, you're an aspiring screenwriter. Um, have, you, have, you, have you completed any, any scripts or, or are you just like me and start a bunch of them and never finish? I actually have completed a lot of scripts. I got really interested into the whole thing when I was in high school. Uh, I think the, one of the first screenplays that got me really interested into the medium was Quentin Tarantino's Pulp Fiction. And uh, mm-hmm. I went to York University, got a degree in humanities, which is kind of a mixture of writing, film, and other English literature. And then I took the postgraduate uh, course at Algonquin College in Ottawa. And I've written a couple scripts, didn't get to sell anything or get them produced, but I haven't done bad with them because I would enter them into uh, competitions uh, over the years and actually do pretty well. I would make it to the semifinals and the finals, but just never got that one big push that allowed me to get my scripts into the hands of someone influential and turn them into a movie. Now, is that's kind of how the screenwriting world works, right? Isn't that kind of the way it, it's it's the winners of those contests that get you know, isn't part of the deal if you win, then some producer actually looks at your script? Exactly. Like you have to get an agent before a producer will even look at your script. And living here in Ottawa, it's kind of hard to break into the industry when a lot of the big activity is in places like New York and Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. But I'm kind of happy with the way wor- things worked out where I'm a script writer for my own podcast now because one of the side effects of making of writing a screenplay for a movie is that some producer or director can change a whole bunch of things and ruin the whole thing before it's completed. Right. And if the movie's bad, the writer gets the blame, even though it's a, a, a different from their original vision. So this is why I'm so happy that now that I have a podcast, I have full creative control for what I write. <laughs> yeah, and it's a big deal because you know I went through that with, you know, and I was pretty happy with the finished product, but I had our, our docu-series on Oxygen, and it was the first time I dealt with someone else telling me what I can say and what I can't say and dealing with time constraints and everything else. The podcast is just a, a great medium because I can make any episode as long or as short as I want to and say whatever I want to say. And it's all, it's all comes back on me, not comes back on me, even though someone else made the decisions. Exactly. And uh, that's why I don't know if I could go back to writing screenplays. I'm, I'm really glad that I did it, spent all these years, because it's a really interesting skill and I really enjoyed it. But uh, I do appreciate the fact that uh, when I'm writing a script for a podcast, I can what I write is what's going to come out when the episode is released. Sure. So if, do you have a favorite screenplay, a favorite story you wrote? Is, are they all fiction? I see some of them are true crime, some of them are unsolved mysteries. Uh, yeah, I wrote a uh, horror screenplay once called Beneath the Mask about kind of a guy who played like a horror movie villain like Jason who uh, uh-huh. he got like a cursed mask and whenever he put it on, it actually made him homicidal and want to kill people whenever he had the mask on. And uh, a couple years ago, or about a decade ago, I wrote one called 99, which was kind of a, a, a superhero movie because, of course, superheroes are kind of the big thing now. But it was kind of a thing where it was a guy who decided to become a vigilante and go after corporate criminals rather than violent criminals. And the big twist was is that halfway through, he would go after this big famous millionaire industrialist who he's convinced is evil but then he finds out that the guy is actually his uh, kind of a Bruce Wayne figure who is becoming his own uh, superhero vigilante kind of like Batman who is actually decent so they wind up teaming up and joining forces to fight corporate crime well that sounds awesome the first one sounds like I feel like Jim Carrey took your idea at some point yeah exactly (laughs) (laughs) 
Another funny thing is, when I was in high school, I wrote a screenplay and action movie with a lead character called Johnny English, and then Rowan Atkinson made a movie with a lead character called Johnny English many years later. Right. <laughs> yeah. Everybody, everybody's just tapping into your idea. They're probably stealing from those, those uh, contests, picking the pieces out of everybody else's scripts. Exactly. <laughs> um, so you and I, we actually met for, uh, I feel like I met you for a moment or two at, at, at CrimeCon. Uh, yeah, we briefly crossed paths in uh, the bar on the last night there, and I was with my friend Ellie, and she mostly ta- did the talking to you. We discussed the West Memphis Three case and the uh, John Benet Ramsey oh, case. Oh, yeah, that's why you look familiar. Yes, yes, I we 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 spoke for a while. Well, Ellie and I did. Yes, I think for, <laughs> for I talked about that on on Truth and Justice on our our Patreon that because you know I ended up not going to bed that night because I had to leave at four in the morning. I remember that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I was like just getting ready to leave, and then Ellie and I got to talking. Ellie was the one. Was she wearing a green dress? Yes, that was her. Yeah, that's the one. Yeah, 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 yeah. So we got to talking about West Memphis Three, and then right as I went to leave, she brought up John Benet Ramsey, and then an hour and a half later, I was still standing there discussing John Benet Ramsey case with her, <laughs> yes. uh, with a whole crowd of people around us. Yeah, yeah, that's that's. I kept thinking you look really familiar, but I don't remember talking a lot to you. But that's why, because you were standing right there for all. Yes, that. I was there. We just didn't get to talk. But that's how Ellie and I originally met. She came to the first crime con in Indianapolis, all the way from England, and then kind of cornered me in a bar to ask me about cases. And we're still friends all uh-huh. these years later and have a lot of great conversations at bars about true crime. <laughs> right, right, yeah. Yeah, and that was uh, that was crazy. Everything was kind of a blur to me. I, that Was that your first trip to Vegas? It was, yes. Not my first crime con, but I had never been to Vegas before, and it's a very busy, bustling city. Yeah, what'd you think? Uh, it was overwhelming at times because I remember my first day there, I just wanted to walk a few blocks to go somewhere. But the way it's set up, Vegas, the strip, is that you can't just walk on a sidewalk in one direction. You get to a walkway, you have to cross the street, then cross another walkway yep. to get another street, and then cross back. So what should be like a five-minute walk winds up taking a half an hour, and you're surrounded by people nonstop. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it, I always tell people, it's like walking around the strip in Vegas is like trying to walk to the mountains. Like, you always see... We had a uh, we had dinner reservations in the MGM, and uh, my wife was like, "Well, it's right there. Let's just walk." And I'm like, "We got to be there in 15 minutes." She's like, "Well, it's like it's just like the mountains. It looks like it's close, but when you start walking, it's going to end up being an hour and a half by the time you finally get there. They just never get closer as you just keep yes, walking." Yes, that's what it feels like, and also the fact that the NFL draft was taking place that same weekend, so there was an extra right. amount of people than usual. I actually could literally hear the draft uh, from my hotel room when they were calling out the names and people cheering, so it was one of the busiest weekends you can imagine in Vegas. Yeah, and I think Erica, who's on our call, our, our production manager, I believe it was Erica, the, their room actually was looking down onto where the draft was at and they could hear like the concerts that were playing and everything mm-hmm. were like right down from my room had a beautiful view of the roof of the building next door. Oh yeah. Me too. Like I, I could hear stuff, but my view was actually just the building next door. I didn't really see anything. Yeah. So I, I see here that, that um, Erica says that one case that you're really passionate about is the murder of Kent. I told, I told, I can never pronounce his name, right? It's the Ryan Ferguson and Charles Erickson case. Yes, Definitely. And there was there wasn't there was recently some movement in that case, wasn't there? Didn't 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 Erickson finally get either exonerated or released, or something happened? Uh, not yet. Uh, Ryan Ferguson, as you probably know, was exonerated and released right. in 2013. But because Charles Erickson agreed to a plea deal to testify against him, he got a sentence of 25 years to life. And it's been very difficult getting his conviction overturned, even though he has recanted his confession 
and there's virtually no evidence uh, left against him. Uh, from what I've, I know that Maggie Freeling has took on his case on the Unjust and mm-hmm. Unsolved podcast, and I have heard that he is up for parole, I think, this uh, maybe next January. So I'm kind of fingers crossed that that will help for him, but I don't know yet how close he is to actually being exonerated. Yeah, I, I just thought I saw something come across my my news feed recently that there was some kind of movement in the case. I'm not sure what it was, but yeah, you actually, Maggie was on the on True Crime Binge. If you go way back, one of the first... Uh, dozen or so episodes she's on and we're talking and we talk about Erickson's case, which is interesting because yeah, that, for those of you that don't know, that's the case where, um, and I don't know a lot about it, so correct me if I'm wrong, but it was, um, the police kind of manipulated Erickson into, well, maybe you dreamed it and maybe this happened and he kind of went along with, okay, well maybe I did and I just don't remember. And then they turned that into a confession, locked up him and Ferguson. Later evidence revealed and he recanted and Erickson or, um, Ferguson got released and he's still sitting in prison. Yeah, it's kind of a weird scenario because the murder had been unsolved for about two and a half years. And then someone phoned in a tip that Charles Erickson had been going around telling people that he thought he had a dream that he had committed this murder alongside his friend Ryan. And when the police interrogated him, they should have known that he isn't providing any details about the crime that are not public knowledge. He's getting a lot of things wrong. But he was manipulated into giving a confession, and he agreed to testify against Ryan at his trial in exchange for a lighter sentence. But I think it took maybe like 10 years before Charles finally convinced himself, I didn't actually do this crime. I was just hallucinating this stuff or imagining it, and I'm innocent, and I do not deserve to be in prison. Yeah. Well, hopefully he gets out soon. It's it's a pretty sad case. Uh, So so tell us a little about the podcast. So you started in 2016, so you're one of of the the few I've talked to that isn't isn't a COVID podcast. Didn't get bored during <laughs> yes. lockdown and decided to make one. Uh, you've been around for a long time, uh, over three over three hundred episodes. So, wh- why did you decide to start the podcast? Well, before I, in between my script writing, my screenwriting, and my podcast, I did a lot of freelance writing for the websites Cracked and Listverse. And a lot of the articles I wrote were about unsolved mysteries and true crime, and they seemed very popular. And what I would basically do is write these articles where I'd write maybe a 400, 500 word summary of the case and eventually got to the point where I wanted to do something more. I kept thinking, these are some interesting cases. Not a lot of people know about them. So why not do a podcast where where I can go into the more in depth? And I should correct that. We originally were going to start off as a YouTube series called The Unsolved Mysteries Fanatic where uh, I would appear in front of a camera dressed like Robert Stack from the old Unsolved Mysteries TV show and talk about cases from the show, talk about whether or not they were still unsolved and other information that was left out. Uh, And we would also intersperse clips from Unsolved Mysteries, but we edited together one episode, put it on YouTube, and within uh, 30 minutes it was taken down because of a copyright violation. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Yeah, from the people who made Unsolved Mysteries. And then myself and my editor slash producer McGill Foote eventually decided, why not make a podcast? Why go to all this trouble of filming yourself on camera when you can just record it from your own home and you don't have to worry about copyright? And what you'll do is you'll talk about the cases and then go over your theories and analysis and uh, hopefully people will listen to it. And <laughs> thankfully they did because I'm still around six and a half years later. Right. Yeah. Which is a, which is no small feat. There's not a lot of po- there's, there's lots and lots and lots of true crime podcasts out there, but not a whole lot of them that are still around six and a half years after they after they started. Yeah. There's a, there's a big burnout factor there. 
Yeah, I remember when I started, there were very few around. I know that Serial kind of opened the doors when it started and inspired mm-hmm. a lot of podcasters. And I listened to Generation Y and Thinking Sideways, which is also not around. And I think I started around the same time as True Crime Garage and The Banished and a lot of other ones that became big. So I think I just came at the right place at the right time when True Crime Podcasting was starting to become popular. Right. Yeah, I've always said that that's, I think, the only reason that I've been successful. I started in 2015, so I, like, got in early when, I mean, there was, I mean, even, even in 2016, you remember, there, there were still, like, people were just looking everywhere, everywhere for podcasts when they were just getting popular. And then people were wanting to fill their day or their drive home with true crime podcasts, and there weren't very many of them. So it's like, well, I've got this one. I listened to Undisclosed on Monday, and then got their addendum Thursday, and then I need something to fill in Wednesday. And then as you know, all of us early people came in, we started getting filled into the queues. Now there's so many thousands of them, it's really hard to break into the industry to, to get one of those drive, drive home slots. Oh, yeah. There are just so many of them. And it's like really hard to stand out from the bunch now because the market is so saturated. Uh, I think our big break for the trail went cold, I think, was in, I think, September of 2016 when BuzzFeed published an article about true crime podcasts. And we were lucky enough to be featured on it. And then all of a sudden, Mm -hmm. our downloads are spiking and we're appearing on the iTunes charts. It's something like 78 overall because of the big surge. And it's like, wow, (laughs) Uh I never imagined that this many people would listen to our little show. That's awesome. And and still, do you have intentions of, of continuing to work your, your other job and do the podcast? Or are you hoping someday to convert to just full-time podcasting? I've thought about it. Uh, the thing is that because I work a cushy government job, I actually have a pension, I have benefits, I have a retirement right. plan. And I think to myself, it would take like a huge financial windfall in order for me to give that up because you just never know if podcasting, the fad will fade and it'll no longer be popular or we'll be able to get any income. So I've ultimately decided to try as long as I can handle both of them to balance them both out and still do the podcast on the side while still holding my regular job. Right. Yeah. It's tough to make that balance, but if you're able to do it, um, do you have, what's your family life like? Do you have do you have a, a partner, kids, anything like that? Dogs? I'm currently single right now. Uh, I have a family and uh, a brother and a niece who live about uh, six hours away. So I can pretty much balance this easily. I don't have too many responsibilities in my personal life. So I can uh, do the regular job and also uh, work on the podcast. Right. That makes that makes a lot of sense. So 2016, you get this idea. What was your first episode you put together? Uh, it was a case that was on the Unsolved Mysteries TV series, which I've always been fascinated with, and that's the 1986 death of Aileen Conway, which is on the very first episode hosted by Robert Stack. You can watch it on YouTube now if you want to learn more about it. But she was a mm-hmm. housewife with six kids, and one day her uh, car was found burning on a gravel road that was about 15 uh, miles from her house, And it was burned so badly that her body was burned beyond recognition and they could only identify who she was by doing a computer check on the license plate. And at first it was ruled to be an accident, but uh, her husband noticed a lot of suspicious discrepancies. He came home that day and discovered that the the door had been left open. She left her purse behind and uh, the bathtub was filled with water and and an iron had been left on. So it almost looked like she had to flee the house in a hurry or something because of a burglary or something or because her life was in danger. But why would she drive out to this remote country road 15 miles away where uh, she had never been before? And they eventually looked at the accident scene and there was evidence to suggest there had been gasoline or an accelerant uh, to cause arson and it could have been foul play. 
but they've never found any suspects. So it's one of those baffling mysteries where no matter how hard you think about it, there's no one theory that makes 100% complete sense that explains everything. Yeah, I'm actually working a case like that on Truth and Justice right now that's still, that's why I was late to the interview. Oh, okay. <laughs> Deep in the, into medical evidence. I'm like, what the hell happened here? So yeah, the, those, ones, those ones will keep you up at night for sure. Um, so the case we're going to talk about today is um, the case I've, I've actually heard about that. I feel like I've, I've either seen like a 2020 or heard another podcast. It's the uh, the potential wrongful conviction of Tommy Ziegler. It was the uh, the murder of Eunice Ziegler and her parents, Perry and Virginia Edwards, along with two customers or, or along with a customer named. It was the customer was Charlie Mays. Killed. Yeah, Charlie Mays. He was the victim. Yeah, Charlie Mays was was also killed in it. Um. Uh, but when I when I started reading about the case, I immediately it sounds familiar. What, do you know why it sounds familiar to me? Where where else might I have heard or seen this? Uh, it was on Unsolved Mysteries during the uh, late 1990s okay. as a final appeal case where they looked at the ambiguity about whether he was guilty or innocent. And they've since done a long form podcast about it called Blood and Truth, which was put together by uh, Leonara Leonara Lapeter Anton, a journalist with the Tampa Bay Times. So it's been in the news quite a bit these past few years. Okay. All right. Well, tell us about the case. I know it happened in, in Winter Garden, Florida. It's 1975, Christmas Eve, 1975. So, so tell us all about it. Yeah, it's probably the most convoluted case I've ever uh, seen. And I covered it on episode 15 and 16 of the podcast. But those four victims were murdered in uh, the W.T. Ziegler Furniture Store in Winter Garden, which was owned by Tommy Ziegler's family. Uh, when the police found out about it, when, uh, Tommy, uh, called the, uh, the police chief from the store claiming that he had been shot and was wounded and needed medical assistance. And by the time they arrived at the store and took him to the hospital, they went inside and discovered that those four victims, Eunice Eagler, Perry Edwards, Virginia Edwards, and Charlie Mays had all been shot to death. And Perry Edwards and Charlie Mays were also beaten severely with a metal crank. But what was unusual is that all four of their bodies were spread out in different spots throughout the furniture store, and there had been a total of 28 shots fired at the scene, and five guns were used, which were all still there, but the fingerprints had been wiped clean. And according to Tommy, when he was questioned, uh, he was supposed to go to the store that night uh, to present to his in-laws with a recliner as a Christmas gift. And so uh, Eunice and her parents would go there first, and he was going to uh, drive there with a handyman he employed named Edward Williams. And when they arrived uh, and gave the recliner to uh, the Edwardses, he was going to do some deliveries before joining his wife at a Christmas party. But according to Tommy, when he walked into the store, it was all dark, and he was attacked by a group of people who knocked off his glasses. And because it was dark and he had bad vision, he could not see make them out at all. Uh, he claimed that he beat them up, but he managed to get to a, a drawer in his office and grab a gun and fire off a shot. But shortly thereafter, he was beaten again and then shot in the abdomen. And uh, then he passed out for about the next two hours or so. And that when he woke up, he decided to call the police for assistance. But uh, the police found some inconsistencies with this story. They actually believed that Tommy had committed all of the murders himself and then self-inflicted the gunshot wound on his abdomen to make it look like he was the victim of a violent attack. And uh, the thing with Charlie Mays is that he was a regular customer at the store, but according to his wife, uh, he, he had told her that he was going to go to the store after hours in order to pick up a TV set that Tommy was going to give him on credit. And they found a bunch of uh, cash and store receipts inside his pocket, 
but they began to believe that uh, Tommy had actually murdered Charlie Mays because he was planning to frame him for the murder of his wife and his in-laws. And so they began to believe that uh, he committed all four of the murders himself and uh, subsequently charged him with four counts of first-degree murder. It's a crazy story. I have a hard time even wrapping my brain around all of the... So, so, cause, cause Tommy wasn't just shot. He was, he was beaten and shot, right? Yeah. And, uh, the, uh, at his trial, a physician would testify that he, he had what appeared to be a lump on his head and, uh, the bullet to the abdomen, like, uh, it was done with a 38, even though one of the other guns done at the scene was a 22. So they, they questioned if he was wanting to inflict a gunshot wound on himself, why use the 38 instead of one of the safer guns, which was, uh, inclined to cause less damage. Yeah, and and, st- and even with that, it's still, I mean, gosh, it's it's uh, it's hard to imagine someone maybe shooting yourself on the leg, but that's a pretty you got to be pretty confident in how your anatomy works to shoot yourself in the stomach or in the abdomen and just hope it doesn't kill you. Exactly, and and there's been a lot of debate about the blood on his shirt because some of the witnesses there thought it looked like it was dry, which would support the fact that he had been shot uh, earlier. And it passed out for a while, but other investigators thought that it was wet to indicate that he inflicted the gunshot wound on himself uh, before he made the phone call to the police. And uh, it's entirely possible that Tommy did legitimately shoot Charlie Mays in self-defense because his original story is that he grabbed a gun from his desk drawer, fired a shot in the dark, and as he was passing out, Tommy said that... uh, He thought he heard some voices saying, he's wounded, we can't take him with us, he's no good to us anymore. So he believes that uh, Charlie Mays' accomplices decided to beat him with the metal crank in order to uh, finish him off because he was wounded and avoid taking him to the hospital. So you think that Charlie's accomplices beat Charlie? Pretty much, yeah. They're suspecting that he and a couple other accomplices were there to rob the store or do something else. But when Tommy fired off his gun and wounded him, they realized we can't take this guy for medical attention. We'll have to finish him off. But uh, they pretty much believed that uh, Charlie was brought there by Tommy and that Tommy killed him in order to frame him for the crime. So what what evidence was there to convict Tommy? Because it's just hard to, I mean, Grant, I've seen it. We covered a case, the Sandy Melgar case out of Houston on Truth and Justice, which was another one where it seemed like no one would do this to themselves. How did she lock herself in a closet from the outside? But they came up with a crazy theory. So what did the what did the state present as their theory? What do they think happened? It was mostly based on the testimony of two eyewitnesses. Uh, there's another guy named Felton Thomas who claimed that uh, Charlie Mays had asked him to come to the store that night in order to uh, help him move the TV set that he was supposed to pick up. And uh, Thomas's story is that when they arrived, Tommy said that, uh, I forgot my keys. Uh, I can't let you into the furniture store until someone brings me an extra pair. But while we're here, uh, would you mind uh, going to an orange grove with me? Because I just got these new guns and I want to test them out. So they apparently drove to an orange grove and he got uh, Mays and Thomas to fire off these guns. And it's been theorized that he was doing this to get their fingerprints and gunshot residue on them so that he could frame both of them for the murder. But of course, this here, this whole this theory is blown open because all of the guns were wiped clean of fingerprints, so it just seems completely pointless. And they also they only found one slug at this orange grove, but it did not actually match uh, any of the guns found at the scene, so they could not find any evidence to support Thomas's story. And uh, Thomas would later say that when he went to uh, finally, uh, Tommy got an extra set of keys and he was going to let them into the furniture store. But Thomas says he got a very bad feeling and decided to run off while May stayed behind. 
And then a couple hours later, he finds out that Charlie Mays has been ma uh, murdered inside this store, so he decided to come forward to the police and say that he was there. But of course, uh, Tommy Ziegler is denied even knowing who Felton Thomas was and claims that he was never at the furniture store that night. And was that, was that change in story? Because I, I, I had read that uh, the Felton Thomas recanted part of his testimony. Was that just that change in story you just mentioned, or did he later recant even more? It was not until about like four decades later he was interviewed with, by uh, Lynn Marie Cardi. She's a defense investigator on the Ziegler case, and uh, apparently Thomas, he didn't completely recant, but he changed parts of his story, and there were also some holes in it, like where he said that, he initially said that... Uh, uh, I had never seen Tommy Ziegler before in my life, before he showed up at the furniture store. But then later on, he's talking about how when he was working on a, on a, uh, on a fruit pricking crew, uh, Tommy Ziegler came over and sharpened his knives for him. It's like, wait a minute, you're saying you've never met him before, but now you're saying you met him on a previous occasion? That doesn't make sense. Okay. So ultimately, Tommy gets sentenced to death, which was, a, there was, there was all kinds of stuff, which you'll get into, uh, they can listen to your episodes. It was at 15 and 16, you said the episodes? Yes, were? that's correct. Yeah. So he's, he's, he's sentenced to death. Uh, at, at what point he gets the sentence thrown out and resentenced and gets sentenced to death again. There's some conflict of interest between Tommy and the judge. Uh, there's some issues with jurors. There's, it, it's, it's a complicated case. Uh, as of right now, Ziegler is uh, Ziegler is seventy seven years old. He's still on death row, still still maintaining his innocence. Is there anything still any pending or working on the case right now? Well, it's it's very frustrating. I mean, I know from the West Memphis three case, you face frustrations trying to get the state to do d new DNA testing, and they're trying to do the same mm -hmm. thing here, but just aren't having any success. Uh, when I was researching this episode, I spoke to Lynn Marie Cardi, who was the defense investigator for Tommy. And uh, I think it was, uh, they, they were able to do DNA testing back in, I think, the early 2000s. And uh, the state's original theory is that there was some blood found on Tommy's shirt, which was type A, uh, which they assumed belonged to his father-in-law, Perry Edwards, because they felt that he held him in a headlock and beat him with a metal crank. Mm -hmm. And because they didn't have DNA testing back in the 70s, they just automatically thought it belonged to him. But uh, they did new DNA testing and then found out that the blood actually belonged to Charlie Mays, which doesn't completely mm -hmm. exonerate him because he's accused of murdering him as well. But because Tommy passed out in close proximity to Mays' body, it's possible that he could have accidentally got the blood on his shirt in the dark uh, without even realizing it. But another key piece of evidence is that they did DNA testing on some blood that was on Charlie Mays' pant leg, which they assumed belonged to him. But then they found out that the blood actually belonged to Perry Edwards. And uh, that's kind of a problem because their bodies were found 15 feet apart. And the narrative from the state is that uh, Perry and Mays were killed at separate times. So there doesn't seem to be any logical reason for Charlie Mays to have Perry Edwards' blood on his clothing unless he was personally involved in murdering him. Right. Well, as you can imagine, there's a lot more to this story. Uh, Robin covered it over the course of two episodes, episode 15 and 16. So for all the dirty deets, go check that out. His name is Robin Warder. The podcast is called The Trail Went Cold. Check it out. Could be your next big true crime binge. 300 episodes to choose from and counting. Robin, thanks so much for joining me. It was great meeting you in person also. Oh, yeah, it's my pleasure, and thanks for inviting me on.
Crime Binge is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Audioboom. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing. Music and artwork by Shane Yoder of PutThemInASong.com. Our website, TrueCrimeBinge.com, was created by Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com. If you're a listener and would like to recommend a future guest or a podcaster that would like to request an interview, you can do so right on our website. And again, that web address is TrueCrimeBinge.com. If you're enjoying the show, please do me a huge favor and take a minute to rate and review us on iTunes or whatever platform you're using to listen. And make sure you give us a follow on social media. We can be found everywhere at True Crime Binge. Thank you so much for listening, and make sure you tune in next Wednesday morning for another podcaster, another case, and another True Crime Binge.